The Hamlet Podcast, Episode 13. Hello and welcome to this exploration of Shakespeare's Macbeth, with me your host, Connor Hanretty. We are now into Act 1, Scene 7, and we meet Macbeth for the first proper soliloquy of the play. Lady Macbeth has brought Duncan and his retinue inside, and rather unusually, we have a set of extensive stage directions here. First, we have more oboes and torches, perhaps to suggest that it's now evening. And then the stage directions read, Enter a sewer, and diverse servants with dishes and service, and pass over the stage. A sewer is something like a head waiter. It came from French, where it meant a taster, which is always useful in a time when poison was a constant concern. This dumb show gives us a very clear sense that dinner is happening offstage. A big meal is underway, and now Macbeth enters, having left the formal dining table. And he speaks at length. If it were done when tis done, then twere well it were done quickly. If the assassination could trammel up the consequence, and catch with his surcease success, that but this blow might be the be-all and the end-all here, but here upon this bank and shoal of time, we'd jump the life to come. But in these cases, we still have judgment here, that we but teach bloody instructions, which, being taught, return to plague the inventor. This even-handed justice commends the ingredients of our poisoned chalice to our own lips. He's here in double trust, First, as I am his kinsman and his subject, strong both against the deed, then as his host, who should against his murderer shut the door, not bear the knife myself. Besides, this Duncan hath borne his faculties so meek, hath been so clear in his great office, that his virtues will plead like angels, trumpet-tongued against the deep damnation of his taking off. And pity like a naked newborn babe striding the blast, or heaven's cherubim, horsed upon the sightless couriers of the air, shall blow the horrid deed in every eye, the tears shall drown the wind. I have no spur to prick the sides of my intent, but only vaulting ambition, which o'erleaps itself and falls on the other. This is another of Shakespeare's most famous speeches, and has some of the most famous lines and images from this play. We'll break the whole thing down and see what's going on. After some pretty heavy-handed euphemisms for it earlier, the night's great business and so on, Macbeth seems to have fixated quite completely on this idea of killing the king. What's troubling him, though, is the worry that there will be consequences. It'd be fine if there was no aftermath. If he could kill Duncan and just be king himself, then he'd do it immediately. If it were done, when tis done, then twere well it were done quickly. He imagines how easy it would be if the assassination could somehow scoop up all of the negative outcomes into something like a net and secure success with Duncan's death if the assassination could trammel up the consequence and catch with his surcease success. Macbeth is fantasising about a crime without punishment. If killing Duncan could be the be-all and the end-all, and that's a phrase that Shakespeare invented here, well then he'd just do it and risk whatever consequences might come after death. 
that but this blow might be the be-all and the end-all here, but here, upon this bank and shoal of time, we'd jump the life to come. Macbeth's imagery here is rich and varied. He has an image of time being like a river, and that he's standing on the edge of it. The bank and shoal of time is a hendiadis, a single image created from two parts. As he stands here on this edge of the river, and remember this because later he will talk to us from halfway through it, he imagines that if there were no negative outcomes now, he'd do it all in this life and jump the life to come. He'd risk whatever might happen after death for the sake of this success now. But, he worries, there are still consequences here. Judgment is inescapable, and indeed very often our actions can return to haunt us, or inspire even worse behaviour in return. Macbeth isn't quite describing karma, but he does know that what goes around can tend to come around. But in these cases, we still have judgment here, that we but teach bloody instructions, which, being taught, return to plague the inventor. There are echoes of Seneca again here, particularly in a line that in English suggests something like crimes often come back to punish the teacher from his play Thyestes. This is not a million miles from what Shakespeare says here. Macbeth also knows that justice can be blind and almost painfully fair, and already he's concerned that this even-handed justice commends the ingredients of our poisoned chalice to our own lips. The poisoned chalice is another famous image, the idea of a gift that seems positive, but in fact will have terrible consequences. Macbeth is obsessing over the negative outcomes of his attacking his king, and all the reasons why he shouldn't do this. He's here in double trust, first as I am his kinsman and his subject, strong both against the deed, then as his host, who should against his murderer shut the door, not bear the knife myself. Macbeth knows that he has a double responsibility to keep the king safe. Firstly, they are related. I am his kinsman, he says. And second, he's a subject of the king, and that alone should be enough to prevent him from committing regicide. Strong both against the deed. On top of that, and thus making this double responsibility actually a triple or a treble one, he is the host of this castle. He should shut the door against the king's murderer, not be the one actually holding the dagger. The image of a dagger in his hand, the idea of stabbing the king himself, sends Macbeth off on a slightly longer sentence as he considers how good a king Duncan has been. According to Hollandshed, he was soft and gentle in nature, a lovely king. Shakespeare has shown him to be a little too trusting and naive, but again this just compounds Macbeth's worry about how meekly he has borne his faculties and how forthright and clear a leader he has been in this great office as King of Scotland. Macbeth worries that all of Duncan's virtues will cry out against such a terrible murder. They will cry with voices like trumpets. He sees image after image, a personification of pity like a vulnerable baby riding on the winds, along with the angels of heaven, the cherubim, also riding the winds like invisible horses, blowing and trumpeting the news of his awful crime into every face, every eye, so that the tears of the world will drown the wind. 
Besides, this Duncan hath borne his faculties so meek, hath been so clear in his great office, that his virtues will plead like angels trumpet-tongued against the deep damnation of his taking off, and pity like a naked newborn babe striding the blast, or heaven's cherubim horsed upon the sightless couriers of the air, shall blow the horrid deed in every eye that tears shall drown the wind. Macbeth really has an amazing imagination. This is such a poetic set of images, it is not at all a practical response, but he's more concerned with his soul, with damnation, with the apocalypse that will haunt him if he kills his king. In the last episode, Duncan was joking about Macbeth's love being the spur that drove him to race home before anyone else so that he could see his beloved wife. Shakespeare resumes the image now as Macbeth blends two separate images of horse riding. I have no spur to prick the sides of my intent, but only vaulting ambition which o'erleaps itself and falls on the other. He's commenting that all that's goading him right now is his ambition. Only his ambition is pricking the sides of his intent to kill the king. He says it is vaulting. Of course it is, since he's already laid out very clearly that the Prince of Cumberland is blocking his path to the crown, so he'll have to vault over him to be next in line. But vaulting was also a skill that riders liked to show. Vaulting into one's saddle was a real feat, described in detail in other Shakespearean plays. Here, Macbeth worries about o'erleaping or overestimating. Vaulting ambition might send him too far, and then he'd fall on the other, instead of where he wants to land. This line also introduces one of the most well-managed entrances in Shakespearean drama. Macbeth says that he has no spur to prick the sides of his intent, and immediately Lady Macbeth enters. It's a piece of visual drama that always works on stage, because it gives us such a strong insight into how these two work together. We'll save what Lady Macbeth has to say for next time, But there's another thread going through this speech that really needs our attention. Killing a king was a crime, but think of the number of kings that get killed in Shakespeare's plays. There are many of them. Somehow, Shakespeare needs to up the ante here to make it just that bit more shocking that Macbeth might kill this king. Within this speech, we've had three major reasons that he should not contemplate this, as his kinsman, his subject and his host. We're not in a battlefield now, we're at a celebratory dinner in his home. This really should not be happening. But for all that, and for all of the apocalyptic images of angels and babies and trumpets and the winds and the sound of the end of time, it's still just one Scottish noble killing another in a power squabble. Except that there's quite a bit more imagery in here. I mentioned back in episode 5 that there was an echo of Judas Iscariot greeting Jesus in that all-important phrase, all hail, and we hear it often enough that we need to be paying attention. Here in scene seven of the play, we have someone who has left the dinner table, worrying about a terrible crime of betrayal he might commit later in the evening. If you're very familiar with the Gospel of John, you'll know that John 13, 27, and let's quote the King James Version since this play was also written with him in mind, Describing the Last Supper, John says of Judas, After the sup, Satan entered into him. Then said Jesus unto him, That thou doest, do quickly. Jesus tells Judas to do what he's doing and be done with it, quickly. 
Macbeth enters this scene in mid-thought, saying, If it were done, when tis done, then twere well it were done, quickly. The echo really feels too strong to ignore, doesn't it? Especially since we also get this reference to a poisoned chalice, another nod to the first ever communion at the Last Supper. Be all and end all is another echo of this all hail that Macbeth can't get out of his head. These nods to Judas at the Last Supper do just enough to equate Macbeth with the most treacherous man who ever lived, the one who betrayed God himself. Tracing the analogy, if Macbeth is like Judas, then killing Duncan starts to seem like even more heinous a crime. The king was considered God's anointed representative on earth, and so killing him would bring about very deep damnation indeed. Macbeth's apocalyptic fantasies start to make more sense if the severity of the crime is this intense, and of course this expansive imagination is his problem. He really does need a pragmatic co-conspirator, and she's just left the dinner table too, and we'll let her speak her words to her husband in the next episode. I'll put some further details about everything from Thyestes to the King James Bible in the show notes for this episode, and as ever, they'll be online for you at thehamletpodcast.com. Thanks a million for joining me, and I'll speak to you next week.